Revelation chapter 6. Sunday morning, studying the book of Revelation together. And while we find our way to Revelation chapter 6, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we will begin a new book this evening, the book of Zechariah. So uh, just a couple books left before we finish the Old Testament. Tonight at 6, each of you are invited. Revelation 6, chapter 1. I mean, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. I've been gone a little while. Um, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat uh, on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And then he opened, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And he opened, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And I looked, and I looked when he opened the sixth seal, And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs, when a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word as Jesus declared it to be, and we know it to be true that it is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. It is going to have the final say, not only in every individual person's life, but a final say in terms of human history. And we thank you for the ability to come and to be exposed to truth that will outlive the heavens and the earth. Lord, we live in this world where there is so much that comes into our ears and into our minds as a result that will be gone the moment the conversation is over or with the change of a a news cycle that will be uh, completely gone. And we pray that as we turn to what is eternal this morning, you would give us the ability to heed your word and hear it and learn it, Lord, in a way that is entirely different from anything else in the world. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in our lives this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning we continue our study of the book of Revelation and continue in studying Jesus' opening uh, the seven seals of the scroll, a scroll that uh, we are told in 
Revelation chapter 5 that he alone is uh, uniquely qualified uh, to take and to open. And the last time we studied Jesus' opening of the first seal to begin the seven-year tribulation period, uh, it involved the unveiling of the Antichrist into human history. It is important to remember what the scroll and what the seals represent as we continue, and we've been away from it for a little while. The scroll is the title deed to planet Earth. And Jesus purchased the earth back from Satan's authority 2,000 years ago in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, but he has yet to take possession uh, of the earth. And the seals represent the means by which, which he will one day take possession of it. And all of that is detailed for us in Revelation chapter 6 uh, through 19. And, uh, and so uh, the, this is the divine judgment that is going to be required of God as it's, as it's detailed in these chapters in order to bring an end to Satan's dominion uh, over the earth to bring an end to man's rebellion against God's dominion and establishing it uh, upon uh, the earth uh, to bring an end to man's rebellion against God entirely. And not merely to bring an end to those things, but so that all that is recorded in uh, chapters uh, 20 through 22 can then bloom forth and bud forth as they're described there. Uh, Jesus' thousand-year reign upon the earth, ultimately everything giving way to a new heaven and a new earth that will be uh, unthreatened by sin, that will uh, be undisturbed, uh, its righteousness dwelling uh, forever. We remember that while uh, chapters 16 through 19 represent the wrath of God, uh, the book of Revelation again does not end with chapter 19. They are simply the means to an end. And they are the means to a very important and very, very good uh, end. It is important to realize related to these chapters that this is not wrath for wrath's sake, but it is a revelation of the level of judgment that will be required by God uh, in, in order to, as the uh, prophet uh, Daniel the prophet wrote uh, uh, of this period, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so we remember as well that chapters 6 through 19 constitute a description because they do constitute a description of the wrath of God that we as Christians not being appointed to God's wrath will not be present uh, to experience these events. Now, it appears that the release of the Antichrist in the breaking of the first seal that the, the first seal kind of constitutes the first three and a half years of the seven-year uh, tribulation period. It will be a period of prosperity, a period of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, great kind of things happening uh, in the earth, a time of peace. The remaining five of the, uh, of the uh, seals that, uh, that we see here and read about here in this, this chapter, they describe what will happen in the final three and a half years of, of the tribulation period. That three and a half years, uh, uh, it, it, final three and a half years is known as the great tribulation. So when you hear people talk about the tribulation, they're talking about the seven years. When they talk about the great tribulation, uh, they're talking about the final three and a half uh, years. You notice, too, that as the seals are broken and as these judgments come forth, uh, <clears throat> that there is no reading of the scroll when that occurs. Uh, it is simply as the seals are broken and the scroll is further unrolled that whatever judgment is found in that section of the scroll, uh, it simply takes uh, place. And, uh, and what is contained in that part of the scroll is given to us as, uh, as each of the description of each of the, the seals are, are broken. 
You notice that seal number two is described in verses three and four, and uh, the description of war and violence uh, breaking out in the world. There's a fiery uh, red-colored horse goes forth, forth, very, very appropriate, red being the color uh, of blood. The one uh, sitting upon that horse, he carries with him a great sword, uh, and he uh, is sent to take peace from the earth. The end result will be that people will uh, kill one another. It's important to notice that while the rider of this horse carries the sword, he does not kill anyone. He is not the one that meets out this. Uh, he does not uh, produce any bloodshed uh, on his own. Men will kill one another. He simply takes peace away, and then men proceed to do all of the damage in the form of war, uh, whether nation against nation or civil war uh, uh, going on within nations of the world in terms of crime going on. Imagine our cities filled with uh, wholesale plundering and rioting uh, and murder. It's going to be uh, complete anarchy. Uh, the world will be reduced to survival uh, of the fittest. And so imagine an entire world uh, where warlord-led uh, gangs are fighting for, for control. The entire world looking like Somalia, uh, looking like Libya, uh, looking like uh, what happens when uh, the drug lords fight for control of territory in Mexico, or uh, what happens in the Gaza Strip. It will no longer be uh, contained to uh, small pockets, relatively speaking, in the world, but it will come to mark the world uh, in, 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 as a rule. It'll characterize San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York and Modesto and everywhere uh, in the world. And so the Christ-rejecting world that we live in today, it has no idea what it owes to God uh, in that it does not know uh, what it owes to God in all ways. I mean, in all the things that God blesses us with. But here specifically, in terms of His influence for peace in this world by the person of the Holy Spirit operating uh, through the church. And that influence of the Holy Spirit in the world through the church is one day going to be removed at the rapture. For those of you who are in law enforcement, how much uh, would it take to overwhelm your ability to keep law in order, even today? Well, it wouldn't take much. Wouldn't take much at all. And the reason is, is because law enforcement is dependent upon a population that wants the same thing that law enforcement wants, and that is law and order. And once you have a population that doesn't want law and order, rejects God's definitions of right and wrong, chooses to operate on the basis of might makes right or survival of the fittest or every man for himself, then forget about maintaining law and order uh, in a world like that. And if you move from the subject of crime uh, to war, we can't even imagine the bloodshed uh, that uh, the weaponry that we have developed in human history, and man has never developed a weapon he doesn't ultimately use. The weapons that are developed and that have never been used in human history are frightening in, in their capacity uh, to destroy and to shed blood. And so if the world doesn't uh, want God uh, <clears throat> or the Holy Spirit's influence for peace, there comes a point where He simply removes that blessing. And as God described uh, in prior to judging the world through the flood at the time of Noah, He said, My spirit will not strive with man forever. He will come to a point where He will cease to contend 
against uh, man's sin. Uh, let him have his fill of all of the wickedness and his rebellion uh, 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 against God that he, he wants to express, but it doesn't result in the paradise that man thinks it will uh, result in. Jesus said what the result would be in his Olivet Discourse, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh uh, would be saved. No flesh uh, would survive it. In this regard, I think it's very interesting uh, to notice how many uh, dystopian movies have been uh, made in the last few years, these end-of-the-world kind of movies that after some kind of a, uh, you know, uh, climate uh, crisis or nuclear uh, in, uh, uh, fight that goes on and there is some small uh, population that survives all of it, all of the cities are, are destroyed and it's every man for themselves and and, uh, and the world marked by chaos and marked by uh, violence, the survival uh, of, of the fittest. And, and, uh, and so the, these, these dystopian movies, it's fascinating to me that these movies are not only made, but they're very well attended. Uh, they strike a nerve. It resonates with people. And they go and they spend however much it costs to go to a movie uh, to, to watch these uh, things. And it's almost as if everyone has this sense of fear in the light of the world that we live in that we are on the wrong track. And, this is, and that this, this dystopian scenario is exactly where uh, we are headed uh, on, on our own. And these kind of of movies were not made in my childhood or in my young adult age, uh, but their popularity has grown uh, in proportion to the degree to which uh, our world and our nation has moved away from the structure and the stability that God's Word and God's definitions of right and wrong uh, uh, produce within, within a, a society. And uh, and, and so, all of the consequences of, of violating God's commandments, of rejecting them, it's as if the population uh, looks at it, and even though they can't see the connection of it to, uh, to God, they can sense the, the handwriting on the wall, that somehow we deserve judgment that somehow we deserve uh, the judgment that everyone senses is coming. The world cannot go on indefinitely as it, uh, as it is going on uh, today. And then what's the other kind of movie that's uh, being made? I mean, one after the, the other. They've simply dominated uh, cinema for the last decade. Uh, they are the superhero movies, aren't they? Because you can only take so much dystopian uh, uh, affair, and then you got to have a superhero to uh, perk you up. It's kind of like a cinema drugs, uh, and uh, you got you got your downers and you've got your uppers on uh, all, all of this. But but here even there's the the sense that our only hope for the world is not going to be found in repentance. It's not going to be found in doing the hard work of becoming righteous again uh, as a people in, in the world, uh, but the, the only hope is in a superhero that's somehow going to magically arrive to deliver us from the mess that we have made. And unfortunately, as we read our Bibles, there is no superhero coming. Not initially, there is. Uh, Jesus, who forgive me for superhero uh, designation on that, but first will be the Antichrist that will come on the scene. You notice a third seal in verses 5 and 6. It speaks of a worldwide famine. So you've got a black horse. Uh, the one who sits on it has a pair of scales uh, in his hands. It indicates a scarcity of food, that food is meted out not by the pound, not by the ton, but it's meted out by the ounce. It's meted out uh, by, by the quart. It is rationed uh, uh, during this, uh, uh, the, the breaking of this seal. One of the living creatures there in verse 6 says, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius do not harm 
uh, the oil and the wine. And so food, real food that's needed to sustain ourselves, needed in order to live, is going to become uh, very, very uh, scarce. A denarius was what a laboring man, a blue-collar worker, would earn in the ancient world in a given day. So we'll say and modernize it somewhere between maybe $150 and $300, depending on what kind of an occupation a person has. It will cost that amount of money to buy the wheat to make a small loaf of bread. It will take that amount of of money to to buy enough barley to make three loaves of bread. In the ancient world, when things were boom times, no human being ate barley. That was animal food. Uh, But here now, human consumption of barley because of the shortage uh, of uh, of wheat. And so you're going to have uh, worldwide famine. Of course, when you have uh, war and violence, famine, goes hand in hand with all of it. And so imagine what uh, a world marked by war and violence is going to do uh, to the supply chains in in the world. We've known even recently uh, how relatively small things can interrupt uh, the supply chain and the distribution uh, of food, and here God is going to do it. It's interesting uh, that, the, uh, that it is declared not to harm the oil and the wine. Now, some people look at that and they say, well, uh, wheat and, um, and barley is going to be in short supply, and, and, and yet the luxuries in life, and, and those would have represented luxuries, those will be in full supply. In other words, the rich are going to get richer, the poor are going to get poorer, and uh, that's going to be the circumstance of, of this, uh, this particular uh, uh, famine. I, I'm not inclined to believe that at all. I'm inclined to believe that this refers to the fact that food will become so scarce and so expensive that there will be nothing left uh, to buy any luxury that that is on the shelves. Uh, Those things will simply accumulate and and remain uh, unsold. And so the world today, it wants to eat food uh, as if it is our right to be fully fed every day. Uh, God has offered no thanksgiving uh, for His supply from the earth that He has has created, His generous supply uh, to us. And then worse yet, uh, the food that does come from the earth that belongs to Him is then used to produce energy within the human body uh, to reject Him and to dishonor Him and to do evil. And so why should He continue uh, to supply uh, food? And one day He won't. And then the fourth seal in verses 7 and 8, death. There's this pale horse that goes forth at this point. It is literally a pale green horse. I never buy a pale green horse. Something wrong with, with that. Uh, uh, Gumby was a dark green. And, and who was it? Pokey? What was Pokey's? So, okay. Pokey was a different color altogether, wasn't he? Okay. Please come back uh, to... Um, A terrible digression here. So it's a yellowish-green horse. And so yellow-green, of course, is the color uh, of a corpse. It's the color of death. So very, very appropriate coloring for this fourth horse uh, and and the death that will come forth. He who sat on it uh, it, uh, was death, and then Hades followed uh, with him. Power is given. Uh, to him, them here, over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, uh, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth there in verse 8. A quarter of the world. So we, uh, the current population of the world is 7.8 billion people. Uh, the number of people who will die under the judgment of just this seal alone will be just short of 2 billion people. It is mind-boggling. It is a mind-boggling number. It is to take the entire population of South America, gone. The entire population of Central America, gone. The entire population of the United States and Canada, gone. The entire population of Europe, gone. The entire population of Sub-Sahara Africa, gone. And then with uh, 20 million 
uh, to spare. It is a staggering loss of life. And the cause, uh, including the sword and famine as is listed here, Jesus hints at what is referred to as death here in this passage, in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 8, that death refers to pestilences and diseases. Jesus put it this way, He said, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. So we see we're following this progression of these seals. And then he says, pestilence, and then earthquakes in various places. These are all the beginning of sorrows. So we've had the COVID-19 pandemic uh, going on in the world, and uh, it has resulted in over 6 million deaths worldwide. Uh, That's a relatively... Uh, the result of the the effects of a relatively uh, well-known virus in terms of developing treatments against it. And and as a virus, it is relatively mild, uh, historically speaking. The Black Black, uh, Death or the bubonic plague uh, took 75 to 200 million people. Uh, worldwide. The Spanish flu uh, earlier in the last century took 50 to 100 million lives worldwide. And I don't know about you, but with this whole COVID thing, and I'm just going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about COVID. It's got a lot of on my mind about that. But this whole COVID thing, how is it that something like this is artificially engineered. In a lab, it escapes. It spreads to the entire world. Deadly results, millions of people dead, and it upends the economies of the world. It sends the whole world into a science fiction kind of isolation and and fear, and there are no consequences. And nobody is held responsible uh, for it at all. How is it that the world world didn't rise up immediately and then establish as the first thing international protocols prohibiting the development of this kind of thing? And yet there was nothing. And there remains nothing. A sane person would make that the second thing that they would do after developing treatments for, for the, the, uh, the, the, the disease. And, and it makes you wonder, what is going to happen when the next one is accidentally released from some lab in China or in Russia uh, or in the Ukraine or in the United States Uh, or anywhere else uh, where it's being developed in the world, North Korea or or, uh, Iran. And all of these labs go on. Like this thing has never happened in in human history. All of this stuff is is still, uh, still occurring. And so whether this level of death here by means of uh, disease occurs as a result of war or a famine uh, or an experimentation with nature that we have no business engaging uh, in. We do not know enough to play the games that, that we're playing uh, uh, with uh, or something else that arises on its own, independent of that. I don't know. But that it could easily happen and wipe out a quarter of the world's population as a judgment of God for doing what we shouldn't, it no longer seems inconceivable to me at all. It would outstrip our resources uh, instantaneously. And so human fragility and, and vulnerability in the face of pestilence should be very, very clear to every human being uh, in the world today. Personally, I wouldn't be surprised if it was some disease or some pestilence that arises in some way out of the uh, unrestrained, uh, widespread practice of 
of sin that is occurring at that time, whether it's sexual or whether it's something else, and then this launches off into the world. And Jesus declared at this time that mankind will have never seen anything like it before or, and never will again. Matthew chapter 24, for there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. And then the fifth seal, there is the martyrdom of tribulation uh, saints there in verses 9 through 11. The opening of the fifth seal reveals to John, reveals to us this great multitude of souls at this time in heaven, and they are under uh, the altar in heaven. And these are, soul, these are the souls of, of people who've been slain for the Word of God, we're told in verse 9, and for the testimony which they held during the tribulation period. And so we'll, we'll uh, kind of... Uh, dig down into this a little more deeply uh, next time when we get into chapter uh, 7. But Jesus spoke of it in, uh, again in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. They will deliver you up uh, to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And so here you have this great multitude of people who will trust in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior during the tribulation uh, period. Uh, and, and these folks are known as tribulation saints. And we learn here that they will be martyred for their faith. Uh, they, they will lose their life for their faith in Jesus Christ uh, as they will not deny Him. Uh, they obey His Word. They're committed to Him in this demonic environment that will be the world at, at that time. And this will doubtless make them a, a target of the Antichrist persecution uh, during that period. And they're described as being under the altar uh, in heaven. And uh, which uh, I think probably speaks of the fact that uh, their blood was shed not as a result of these judgments, these seals, but as a result of their sacrificial commitment uh, to God. And then now they find themselves in a place of absolute undisturbed uh, safety. Remember in, in the Old Testament, when there was a sacrifice made, the blood was then poured on the ground uh, at the altar. And so this represents their, the, their sacrifice uh, in remaining committed to the Lord in, in the midst of, of the tribulation period. They cry out, you notice, in verse 10, asking the Lord how long until He avenges their blood uh, by judging those uh, upon the earth who have uh, murdered them. And so they pray, Lord, we have been uh, murdered, we have been martyred for being faithful to you, and, uh, and as a result of uh, this uh, work of the Antichrist, and they cry that the Lord will bring an end to this persecution uh, of other Christians that are uh, on the earth and are, are as yet unmartyred uh, uh, during the tribulation period. The response to their cry is given to us in verse 11. A white robe is given to each of them. So a symbol of righteousness, the symbolness, uh, a symbol of the righteousness that is imputed to us, uh, perfect righteousness uh, on the basis of our faith in, in Jesus Christ. So it's a reminder that even though they have been uh, outwardly persecuted, outwardly martyred, it hasn't resulted in any kind of, uh, uh, of ultimate uh, defeat by their enemies. They've simply graduated into uh, the glory uh, of, of heaven as a result. They're told to rest a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants uh, are going to also be uh, martyred as well. As soon as that number is complete, then Jesus will bring His judgment upon the earth at His uh, second coming. And so, uh, they're basically informed that the judgment of their persecutors is not a matter of if, but it's simply a matter of when. The sixth seal <clears throat> is this, these heavenly uh, disturbances, the sun, the moon, the stars, and, and the earth given to us there 
in verses 12 through 14. So you have an earthquake that is so great that it uh, it moves uh, every mountain and island uh, on the earth out of its place. Now that's an earthquake. That's an earthquake. Because on land, a mountain is the symbol of stability. Uh, on the sea, an island is, is the, the, the mark of, of stability, the expression of it. And so the idea is that nothing will be stable of a physical nature. The entire world is going to be uh, reconfigured uh, in, uh, as a result uh, of, of this uh, earthquake. The cosmic disturbances are listed. The sun will become black like sackcloth of hair. Perhaps the burning of fires as a result of, uh, of the judgments, as a result of uh, the volcano or the earthquake or whatever, huge particles put into the air and the sun is made to look black. Same thing with the moon becoming uh, like blood. We're told further, as if that's not mortifying enough, in verse 13, that the stars of heaven uh, then fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Well, it's one thing to see a fig tree, and the figs are late, they're ripe, they're fully ripe, a great wind comes through, and you see those figs drop to the ground. It's another thing to uh, see uh, the... Uh, a blast of wind or a blast of something coming upon the earth that shakes the earth so much and and the heavens that stars begin to fall to the earth as a result. And that's what is going to take place. The sky recedes as a scroll when it's rolled up. So they had, of course, scrolls in those days and they would just simply uh, roll up the scrolls and uh, and so the skies will become like that. If you grew up in my days, you remember kind of uh, Looney Tunes and Warner Brother cartoons where sometimes a cartoon character would pull down the shade and the shade would then go up, go, and uh, well, it's one thing in a cartoon. It's another thing when it's the skies, when it's the heavens, when it's uh, the sun and the moon and the stars. So you might ask, well, what, is, what does this mean? That the sky's going to be recede as a scroll when it's, when it's rolled up. I don't know. And, uh, and I, but I don't want to be here when it, when it happens. The interesting thing is that presently, the world order that God has given to us, physically speaking of the world, in terms of the heavens and the earth, it is so dependable that we can set our calendars to it. It is so dependable that we can even set our watches to it. It is the absolute picture of dependability in, in, in uh, all, all around uh, us. But the day is going to come when that order that man considers to be a part of some evolutionary process, rather than being uh, a part of a creation and a design intended to reveal a creator and a designer. And then one day God will say, I'm going to take away the stability and the dependability of my creation that you've come to take for granted in your wickedness and rebellion against me, and I'm going to remove the blessing that it is. Now, in verses 15 through 17, the reaction of the population of the world uh, to the six seals are, are given to us. And we notice in verse 15 that their reaction is universal. It cuts across all different uh, classes, socioeconomic uh, groups, every kind of person, kings, rich men, uh, great men, commanders, mighty men, slaves are free. They end up hiding in caves in the rocks of the mountains. So apparently, uh, that if you want to invest in real estate, uh, during the Great Tribulation, don't invest in real estate in a major city. People are going to abandon those, and they're going to try and find something that uh, has the potential of being uh, earthquake-proof. Uh, 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 and so here now, they're living in caves, and it's, it's really poetic justice. I mean, they are living uh, like animals. They are living like uh, the outwardly and physically like the animals that they are in the eyes of God uh, morally 
and, and spiritually. You notice their cry there in verse 16. They cry for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. Uh, they, they, do, they desire for their lives to be brought to an end in the face uh, of this uh, judgment. And so they have this uh, hope of escaping, being hidden from uh, the face of, of God the Father, from the wrath of the Lamb, speaking of Jesus by means of death. It is fascinating to me to notice that they recognize the source of the judgment to be from God. They recognize that. They are not atheists or agnostics on this, on this point. They, they also have a very firm grasp upon the Godhead. Uh, they believe in God the Father. Uh, they believe in God the Son, in Jesus the Lamb. They acknowledge God and they acknowledge His power. And they acknowledge God to be greater than them and His power to be greater than them. And they readily confess that this wrath or this judgment of God is inescapable, that they possess no protection in and of themselves from this judgment. They do everything but the one thing that is needed, they refuse to repent and to turn to God. They won't repent of their sin. They won't repent of their self-will. And by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, being forgiven of their sins, and then surrendering their lives to God, they would rather die than repent of their sins, to give their sins up, uh, or to surrender to God. I think it's important to realize that that kind of person exists, that they would rather destroy their own lives than repent. They would rather uh, or give up their sin. They would rather destroy an entire family than to give up their sin. Uh, they would rather destroy a nation or the entire world than to repent of their sin. And I think that we live in a nation here now where a significant part of the population would be content with the destruction of the uh, spiritual and moral foundation of this nation and thus result in the destruction of the nation itself as long as they can engage in their sin. As long as there is uh, abortion on demand, uh, as long as they can engage in any and all sexual immorality without any kind of restraint, as long as they can take all of the recreational drugs that they choose, they can express their pride or their selfishness without any restraint in all of those forms and so forth. They will not give up their sin to save their own lives. And they will not give up their sin to save the lives of others, not even to save a nation or to save a world. And in the, their blindness and addiction to sin and selfishness, they would rather burn the whole house down upon themselves than to give these things up. And when in this spiritually and morally demented state, the love of God no longer has any impact upon them at all, then for the sake of the world, the righteous, for the sake of the creation, what belongs to God, the universe, God must step in, and He must step in with His uh, judgment. And so that's going to be the condition uh, of virtually the entire population of the world during the tribulation period. It won't be a small segment of the world as it is today, uh, but the, the, the uh, condition of virtually the entire population of the world at that time, which will then make God's judgment uh, and His wrath not only righteous, but it will make His judgment necessary. That phrase there in verse 16 is a fascinating one as well. That phrase, the wrath of the lamb. What does it take to tick off a lamb? <laughs> Do any of you know? 
I mean, it's a, next to maybe a doe or a deer or something like that. I mean, it's one of the gentlest animals. I, I've just, I've never seen them growl. I've never seen them attack. If I walk through a field and there's a whole flock of them, I never have the sense that I'm in any kind of danger at all. What do you have to do to provoke wrath in a lamb? And what does the world have to do to provoke wrath in the Lamb of God, in Jesus? And that's the point that is is being made. It can be done, but it requires a lot of abuse, I would assume, to provoke wrath in a lamb. And the same thing is true of Jesus. He is love. He's not willing that any should perish, that all would come to repentance and be saved. But there's a point when His love and His gentleness in dealing with mankind is rejected. Sin is so loved, it's so treasured, it's so protected, it's so adored that He has to rise up and He has to judgment, judge it. And judgment is never His first choice, uh, but He's fully capable of it. In the Greek language, there are two words that are used for wrath or for anger. The first one is the word thumos. It refers to an explosive uh, anger, the anger that is very, very emotional. And so it comes forth in a flash, and, and as quick as it comes forth, uh, just as quickly it, 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 it ebbs, uh, ebbs away. And this is referred to a person as being uh, hot-headed. That's not the Greek word that is used here. The word that is used here of Jesus and the wrath of the Lamb is orge, and this speaks of a different kind of, of wrath. And it speaks of an indignation that rises gradually and very, very gradually. It is, it is a, a, a wrath that is very settled. It is very deliberate. Uh, it is very controlled. It is very measured. There isn't an ounce of hot-headedness to it at all. And so when God, God's wrath is never an emotional, out-of-control kind of, uh, of outburst. It's always under control. It's always uh, firmly founded upon reason and not upon e- emotion. There's always a reason for it. And the Bible teaches that God watches the world all day, every day. He watches every square inch of it. Inside, outside, everything. He sees absolutely uh, everything. And not only does he watch everything, but the Bible says he ponders it. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of man's paths. And the word ponder means to observe. It means to weigh mentally. So he watches all of it, and then he weighs it. It's kind of like um, he puts it something like this, hmm. And he's just watching everything as, as it's going on. And imagine what he sees as he watches this world. And then as a holy, loving God, the wickedness, the rebellion against him, against his ways, the sin, the victims uh, of, uh, produced by uh, the sin of others, the persecution of his, uh, of his people uh, all around the world, and include it today, and including during the tribulation uh, period, and, and to be a perfectly holy God, pondering the ways of sinful man is going to produce an emotion within you, a settled, rational emotion, and that emotion is wrath. Now, some people have a problem with the wrath of God uh, or His promise to judge uh, sin or to judge wrongdoing, and it's very important to understand that God's uh, wrath and His judgment comes out of His righteousness. His anger is always a righteous uh, anger. His anger is never expressed toward good. It is always expressed toward uh, unrighteousness. And so wrath is an expression of God's righteousness. The fact of the matter is, God could not be righteous if He did not experience wrath in the face of sin and in the face of of wickedness, and then to express that wrath toward the wrongdoing or, or the wickedness as a, as a form of judgment. 
I want you to notice, too, that this wrath is described there as the wrath of the Lamb. It is not described as the wrath from the Lamb. It is described as the wrath of the Lamb. In other words, this is not merely something that Jesus does or that He meets out one uh, one day. It is a part of Him. It is personal. It's a personal emotion. He feels it. It's a part of His nature. And thus, it is righteous, it is holy, and it is loving. And so here you have the person who rejects the God of the Bible out of hand with the declaration, I cannot believe in a God of judgment. I believe uh, only in a God of love. I can't believe that God would condemn men and women and hold them responsible for the life that they've lived and ultimately sentence them uh, to hell on the basis of that, that judgment. I don't want anything to do with a God like that. But the same person would never say of a judge in a courtroom or of the judicial system in their nation, I just can't believe in a judge or in a judicial system that would hold someone responsible for their actions and then upon finding them guilty to throw them into prison or jail for their wrongdoing. That would be preposterous. That would produce a hell on earth if if that was the characteristics of our judicial system and our judges. And yet as preposterous as that position would be on a human level, we think nothing of applying uh, it, it to God Himself. No one rejects sporting events or stops watching football or basketball because refs and umpires have the authority to penalize wrongdoing and then to exercise that authority by throwing a flag for roughing uh, uh, the passer or calling a foul to declare a player to be safe or to be out at home plate. No one would say, I just can't believe in a referee or an ump who would do that. If they didn't have that authority and then exercise that authority, you would not have a game. You wouldn't have a sport. The entire thing would devolve into anarchy without the existence of laws. And then the righteous enforcement of those laws. And so everywhere that you look in life, whether our judicial system or sporting events, we honor these things. We even demand this. Of everything else around us, we consider them to be necessary. We would be outraged if they did not exercise their authority and their judgment for the sake of the larger whole. And yet the moment this gets applied to God and to His universe and His laws, now all of a sudden it's something intolerable. And it's completely irrational. The world is an insane asylum. But heaven is not afflicted with that kind of, of insanity and blindness. It's completely irrational to make God the bad guy in any situation he is forced to judge, as opposed to shifting the focus to the one who has created the problem, the one who has done the wrong. And that, yet that is exactly what so many people uh, do. And it's important to realize that it's God's righteousness that's revealed in His wrath towards sin and His judgment of it. He would not be righteous if He didn't do so. And as John Walver talks about in his commentary on this, he says, Revelation chapter 6 here, it blows up the entire concept in terms of Christianity or blows up the entire um, uh, characterization uh, of Jesus as being solely uh, a, a capable of love, but not being capable of wrath or of judgment. You're reading a different Bible to come to that kind of conclusion uh, concerning Him. And since Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a revelation of Jesus Christ, this teaches us concerning Him that He's not only a God of love, but also a God of wrath. 
and a God of judgment. And if he was not also a God of wrath and a God of judgment in dealing with a fallen world, he could not be a God of love. The Bible never apologizes for the fact that God is both a God of love and a God of of judgment. Let me close here by uh, a C.S. Lewis quote uh, that speaking to all of the attacks upon uh, the God of the Bible as unloving simply because he has commands and expects them to be obeyed. He said, uh, you ask for a loving God. You have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of, conscient, uh, 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 of conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between uh, the sexes. And I have to say that candidly, the fact that the God of the Bible has a backbone, so to speak, that he is both loving and he is also righteous is very, very refreshing to to me. And I think it's refreshing to you and anyone who watches the world define love as never doing the hard thing, as never saying the hard thing, as never demanding uh, the hard thing, and then congratulating itself on how loving it is while watching people destroy their lives a thousand different ways. That kind of love will never produce a a heaven on earth. It will only result in making the world a a living hell. And and so uh, it it proceeds to do uh, all around us. God is both loving and He is righteous and He is a God of judgment. And none of this is contrary one to the other. And the importance of, if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you never want to face Jesus one day as your judge. Everyone will face Jesus one day. We will either face Him and He will stand before us as our judge or as our Savior. You want to face Him knowing that is my Savior. And today's the day to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be forgiven and then be removed from all of this judgment that we're talking about, not only in this life, and not only in uh, in time, but also in eternity. And there'll be other pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to give your life to Jesus Christ uh, this morning. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we see the um, so-called brilliance of man, all of the experiments, all of the harebrained ideas that are tried, um, and the catastrophic consequences to them in terms of people, in terms of their lives, in terms of the absolute mess that is made uh, of all things. And yet, we continue as a whole to be impressed with our own wisdom and with our own ideas. And the idea that somehow we can produce something uh, 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 in terms of wisdom that is better than you or define a God who is better than, uh, than you, or produce an earth that is better than the one that you can produce. And we thank you for passages like this that, get, that are strong, uh, that are firmly founded, that are uh, rational, 
uh, that uh, makes sense not only in our mind, but in our spirit and in our experience. And to know, Lord, that you are the only one that knows what you're doing in this world. And then to thank you for your son this morning, that we might be on the right side of you. And not only to escape all these things, but to enjoy the priceless life that we enjoy even now with you. To speak and to say nothing of the glory of heaven one day. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you that it will outlive the heavens and the earth. Thank you for allowing us to build our lives and our eternities upon it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.